If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to cover an, an amazing amount of ground today. We've taken two weeks to cover one verse, and we're going to cover three verses in one week. Just blazing like light speed through this thing. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. We, we, we've said in Colossians that Paul sets out to put forth really an unrivaled view of Christ, of total sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. If you were to look at Paul's letters, it is very customary that at the beginning of his letters that he, he initiates a greeting. He begins with a greeting. This is found in, in really every one of his letters, I believe, except for Galatians and for Titus. And in Galatians, he really doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about them. But at the beginning of his letters, he will give a greeting and he will list what it is that he is thankful for, why he is writing the letter, something in them that he is thankful for. And it's interesting what he says here at the beginning of Colossians. Thankfulness really is a, is a key mark or key marker of a believer. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on right after that to talk about not quenching the Spirit. It's interesting in Ephesians 5 20, so in Thessalonians, he says, be thankful in everything. In Ephesians 5.20, he says, giving thanks for everything. And in the context of that, again, it is connected with the Spirit. In verse 18 of Ephesians 5, he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. A key indicator, a key marker of an individual who is not only a believer, but a believer who is filled with with the Spirit, is, is thankfulness. It's thankfulness. And, and we have, as believers, we have much to be thankful for. It's interesting here in Colossians that Paul's thankfulness, you see it on your handout, centered, it's centered on God and the person and work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. This was not a circumstantial thankfulness. They were thankful for their salvation. They were thankful for the work that God had done through Jesus Christ and applied to their lives by faith. Again, this, that is why they could be thankful in and for all things because those things that they were in and were going on did not compromise their relationship with Christ, did not compromise their salvation, did not compromise the fact that they were still in Christ. And it's exactly the gospel and its outworkings, really, that you see Paul stressing here as, again, the source of his thanksgiving. And the section really goes from here all the way to verse 23, if you were going to carry out the thought. And in, the, in those verses, Paul is going to say they had received the gospel, they had grown in the Lord and in knowledge and understanding of the gospel, 
They had been rescued. They had been transferred to a new kingdom. They had been reconciled to God through Christ. They had peace with God through Christ. And all of this was summed up here for Paul in that he was thankful. They had appropriated these things to their lives. And again, this thankfulness, this God-given Spirit-fueled thankfulness, it, it, again, that, that automark of believer, it's not something where you wake up and you're like, i got to be thankful today, i got to be thankful today, i got to be thankful today. I gotta... That, that's not what he's saying. It's a thankfulness that's spirit-driven. It's a, it's a thankfulness that's gospel-fueled. It's a thankfulness because of who we are in Christ that we know that, as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we can be thankful. We, we know that God is at work in us and that he uses circumstances. You look at 2 Corinthians 4.14 that this momentary light affliction is producing us eternal weight of glory. God's doing something. And in the midst of whatever it is, he's doing something. He's, he's forming you. He's shaping you. Romans 8.30 says he's shaping us. He's conforming us into the image of Christ through circumstances. I mean, Paul himself is writing this where he's, when he is located where, church? He's in prison. This is not a circumstantial... Our, as believers, this isn't a circumstantial thankfulness. This is a deep-rooted, a deep-seated thankfulness that's sourced in the gospel. The security and the solidarity, the sufficiency in the work, the supremacy of the work of God through Christ in the gospel. And, and that thankfulness really, as, as I read this and study this and you, and you realize the context, one of the interesting things about Paul's great thankfulness with regards to the Colossians was it, it's intensified when you realize he had never met the Colossians. He, he didn't attend their church and visit and walk away and say, man, those guys are thankful. You know how, you know how Paul knew they were thankful? He heard about their thankfulness. He heard about it. He, he, he learned about it. Listen, we, we said the other day the context that Colossae was a very metropolitan city, that it was on a trade route and, and people were coming and going and, and, and a lot of people were introduced to the Colossians and the Colossians were introduced to them and, 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 and on the other side there was a lot of bad theology that made their way to them and, and they start, you know, have a tendency to mix it. But, but listen to this, as people came to Colossae and as they left and as they went on away, here's what, they, what we read today is what they said about the Colossians. This is a people that have great faith. This is a people that have great love. This is a people that have great hope. Paul heard about that from others. When the, when, the, when the people came to Colossae and they met them, they went away with that thinking about those people, those believers in Colossae. When they went away, when people met them, interacted with them, and walked away to the point where Paul heard about it. And it got me thinking. I, I wonder when somebody comes and visits this church. I wonder when your neighbors interact with us. When, when our neighbors interact with us, I wonder when, when your friends at school interact with you or when, when your teammates interact with you or, or, or at work, when your co-workers interact with you, what do they walk away thinking about you? 
If word got back to Paul today, what would he write about the church at Odessa? What, what do your co-workers say about you when they leave you? What, what, do your, what do your friends say about you? How do they characterize you? What, what would Paul commend us for? What, what would that list include? What would he be thankful? What would Paul be thankful that the gospel is producing in us? What would he say? And, and what we see in these verses really are three cardinal virtues that are seen and, and they're connected throughout the word of God. And these are things that all, if, you're, if you're really a believer, these things ought to mark your life. Why? Because they're rooted in the gospel. They're not circumstantial. These are qualities and characteristics that when we really understand the gospel, when we really have applied that to our lives, this is the fruit. The Colossians, they were known for these three things. And again, you and I ought to be known as believers for these three things. And so I want to look today at the source of Paul's thanksgiving and really ask the Holy Spirit not only in my life, but ask the Holy Spirit in your lives to, to maybe do some surgery, maybe do some investigating. Do these mark my life? When people hang out with me, when people are around me, is this the type of person, are these the characteristics that they walk away from seeing in me? And, and the first thing that Paul says he was thankful for, you see it on your handout, he was thankful to God for the Colossians' faith. We give thanks to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's, there's unity there, there's equality there, there's a whole sermon there that, that, you know, as slow as I'm going, I'm still skipping over some stuff. Praying for you always since we heard of your faith in Christ. Faith, faith again, the fundamental means by which God's grace is a, in Christ is appropriated to somebody's life. Ephesians 2.89, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest any man or woman would boast. It, what Paul is saying here, he's making it clear that their faith was fixed somewhere specific, that Jesus Christ was the object of their faith. It wasn't just faith in general. It wasn't just somebody saying, well, I'm a man or a woman of faith. The follow-up question to that is faith in what? Because your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. Again, otherwise, that's just wishful thinking. That's not faith. It's only as secure as the object. And their faith was specifically in Christ Jesus. It was a specific person. Again, they had placed it somewhere singular, somewhere unwavering. Again, the issue is not just the presence of faith. You'll see it on your handout. The faith that Paul was thankful for had complete reliance, total dependence at a fixture. It was fixed on the person of Christ, like an anchor. Daniel sang in the songs today, talked about an anchor. When you're on a boat, when we went scalloping a few, a few weeks ago as the men and the, their, their sons, we would find a place where we thought there were scallops. You know what we do? We would throw out an anchor. And there were times where even when we were on the boat, the anchor wouldn't grab hold. The boat, even though the anchor was thrown out, it didn't grab hold. It was drifting. Look, that anchor is only as good as the object that it digs into. There were times where we had to go down and shove the anchor down. 
That's what faith is. Faith is throwing out my anchor and fixing it on Christ. Because he's solid. He's sure. I can trust the sufficiency there. And and interestingly enough, this wasn't a past faith. We heard of your faith in Christ. The, The word there, it is a present focus. And you see there in your handout, the Colossians' faith was not only a past initial trusting, it was the present focus that they were living by, faith. They weren't just trusting Christ for salvation, they were trusting Christ for living. That's the gospel. They were saved by faith. They were living by faith. You say, well, well why is faith such a big... What, what is faith? Let's first answer the question, what is faith? If you were to go to Hebrews 11, verse 1, we, we've looked at it before, but Hebrews 11, 1 gives a very clear definition of biblical faith. It says, now faith is the assurance. Listen, that word assurance in the Greek, it literally means title deed. We, we talked about this Wednesday in the adult class. It, when you pay off your house, if anybody does that anymore, when you pay off your house, the bank is going to send you what? They're going to send you a deed. You know what that deed tells you? That that house is yours. Free and clear, it's yours. That's the word Paul uses. Faith is the title deed of things hoped for. You may not see them. You may not grasp them totally. But guess what? They're yours through faith. The, the assurance of things hoped for, listen, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. You see the, sure, the surety of our faith because it's in an object. It's in Christ. You see it on your handout. Faith is being confident in the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save us not only from the penalty of our sin, but the power of our sin as we live. We're free to live in obedience. We're free for our faith to cost us whatever. We're free to do that. Why? Because our confidence is in Christ. And as we read the word, as we learn of the word, we see pages and pages, countless instances where God was never, ever, ever not faithful. And therefore, it fuels our faith. Again and, and again, these are things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, future. The conviction of things not seen. Listen, the hero of our faith is it's God. It's Christ. And, and let me illustrate that for a second. I, anybody ever, anybody ever been to a trapeze show? I, I, you, you may have gone to a circus. I don't know how popular those are anymore. But you see these trapeze show and these people swing on this bar... They swing, and then all of a sudden they let go. And they just start flipping around in the air, and they're letting, you're thinking, what in the world, what is this person doing? And look, we're in awe with those people. We watch them, and we're amazed. And, and we think that they're the hero of the show. But listen, you know who the hero of a trapeze show is? The hero of a trapeze show is the person that you don't see that's hanging on that bar that's going to catch that joker that just let go. That's the hero. And, and that, tra- that person trusts that other person so much, you take away the nets, you take everything. You know what? I'm going to let go because I know that that person is going to be there to catch me. Faith. Again, that the person who is flying through the air, they'll only let go when they're confident that the other person is going to catch them. 
Everything depends on the catcher. It depends on the character of the person who, and, and their ability to catch. And listen, suppose they never met. Suppose they had never met the catcher. Suppose they had never had a relationship with the catcher. Suppose they had never, never met him and you just, hey, we're going to put this other guy out there and you just let go. What are the chances? Not, not good. And, and my, my point is, I believe it's like that in our lives as believers. If we don't know the one who has promised to catch us, if we don't know the one who's promised to never leave us and never forsake us, if we don't know the one that says, no matter what, I'm for you, not against you. No matter what, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Not, not, spiritual, not principalities, not spiritual forces, not none of those things, not even death. Paul says, no, or no other created thing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes. It's at that point, you know what we'll do? We'll let go. It's at that point that real faith jumps in there. It's a hope. It's a conviction of things not seen. God is the hero of our faith. And if we don't know this God real well, listen, we're going to have a hard time letting go. And, but the challenge for us is this. Romans 1.17 says the righteous shall live by faith. You can't get around faith. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. We, we, again, we live by the same faith in the gospel that allowed God's grace to flow to our lives originally. We live by that faith, trusting our Savior. You say, well, why does it matter? It matters greatly because Hebrews 11.6, listen what it says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he, for he who comes to him must believe that he is who he says he is and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Seek him. Seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We'll take it a step further. Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever is not done of faith is sin. Sin. You can't get around faith. Both of those passages and many others clearly link saving faith with living faith. But the point is, our faith is not unfounded. It's not lacking a source. It's not lacking a substance. It's not out of nowhere. It's not with a catcher that we don't know. It's with a God who has revealed himself perfectly through Jesus Christ. He has made himself known. He's given us thousands and thousands of years of history to show that he was never once not faithful. Even when Israel was not, he remained faithful. He can be trusted. No matter what, he can be trusted. That's faith. It's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even to the point where Jesus could promise that, that a believer would never die. In John eleven twenty five 25 and 6, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die even though he dies. Faith. Death is the separation of God's creation from himself, and, but yet death for a believer only unleashes me, only in, ushers me into his presence in a way like never before. You don't die. 
You, you gain the, the hope. All that you hoped for, all that was promised to you, becomes yours at death, believer. And again, faith in the promise, it frees us to live. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain what, Paul? Gain Christ. He goes on to say, look, but if God chooses to leave me here, you know what it's going to mean? It's going to be fruitful labor. Why? Because I'm gaining Christ that way. One way or the other, it's all about Christ. Faith. If he lived, he lived by faith. If he died, he was dying in faith that, that God was able to do exactly what he had promised he would do. Faith. Faith. And, and biblical faith sees and understands our, that our union with God through the gospel begins now, but begins now. It's not a future I'm waiting. No, begins now. We can have fellowship with God through the gospel now. Communion, intimacy. We've said it time and time again. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that you may know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now. Eternal life begins now. That's what is on your hand now. Union with God is experienced now through Christ as we live by faith. Know Christ. Live by faith. Be, be free to jump, knowing that, look, no matter what, when, if God has commanded it, you can do it. Why? Because He's faithful. He's faithful. Whatever blessing, whatever suffering we end up, guess what? In, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, here's the reality. Whether blessing or suffering, you're going to know him more. That's what he's offered. You'll know him more. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. He, he, he considered the loss of all things rummish, what? Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He says in Philippians, I think it's 3... 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but what? The fellowship of his sufferings. He says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but what? To suffer for his namesake. Granted, that word there is grace. Why? Because he's worthy. He's good. He's beyond compare. Listen, he's so far beyond compare, Paul says, that look, Everything doesn't have to work out hunky-dory, and I'm still going to love him, and I'm still going to make much of him. Why? Because that's how good he is. That's how good he is. He doesn't have to buy my affection. He doesn't have to buy any of that. He's good no matter what. That he can spend my life and do whatever he want with me, that he would get glory. And at the end, he's good. That's faith. That no matter what, no matter what, we won't waver. And, and you see it on your handout. It's knowing Christ. It's this experiential knowledge. Intimacy. The word know there, it's, a, it's an intimate word. That's what allows us to surrender our lives to Him and, and enjoy Him knowing, listen, we have eternity. He's faithful. And I pray that we would be a church that would be known for our faith. Known for a willingness to take risks on, from our perspective for Christ's glory, knowing that it's not really a risk because of the surety of the catcher. Because of the confidence that we have in God that, look, even if we die, we don't die. That's faith. Conviction of things not seen. Confidence of things hoped for. 
And that faith frees us to jump. Why? Because we're confident in the catcher. We've known Christ. So Paul was thankful for their faith, but Paul was also thankful for the love that they had. Look at what he says. Not only the faith and the love which you have for all the saints. Paul commends the Colossians for their love for one another. And again, again, it wasn't just for a few saints. It wasn't for the saints that looked like them. It wasn't for just the saints that thought like them. It wasn't for the saints that were just easy to love. It wasn't for just the saints that loved them in return. He says, for all the saints. Interestingly, in Galatians 5, 6, he says the same thing. Listen, faith and love united. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Real biblical faith. Here's what it produces. It produces a love for other believers. It also produces a love for the world. But Paul says in Galatians 6, it produces in a special he says, love all, love all, but especially, especially the believers. Why? Because we're family. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted, you've been grafted in, you've been brought into the family of God. You've been made children of Abraham, Galatians 3. And again, the fact that a person, the fact is that a person who is in Christ warrants this love, not because some quality that they possess, but because, because of how God first loved you. 1 John four nineteen says, In this we know love, that God loved us first. Take the love that we've received through the gospel and pour it out on other people. That's all he's saying. It's not, again, it's not a contract of... It's not making... No, look at how God has loved you. Look how God has loved me, and then love others. That's the point. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Gave himself up for us, died for us. And that's Paul's whole point here. The, the word saint, it, doesn't, it means believer. It doesn't mean some especially holy or great person. It doesn't mean a morally excellent person deserving love. It, it means believer. And Paul's point, you see it on your handout, is that we don't get to pick and choose who we love in the body of Christ. And again, think about the context here. Many travelers made their way to Colossae because of where it was located. They would, they, they would make their way there. Believers love, and, and when they made their way there, guess what? The believers who were there lavishly loved the believers who had made their way there. From a physically, from a physical, from an earthly standpoint, they were strangers, and yet from a spiritual standpoint, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, they loved them. Why? Because they had been first been loved themselves in the gospel. These other believers were family, and so they loved them in faith. In faith. And, and guess what? Word traveled around about these Colossian believers. Look, hey, you go to Colossae, those believers there, they're going to look after you. They're going to take care of you. Imagine that reputation. I mean, think about, think about you and I and the context of our gatherings and, and our dwellings in our neighborhoods and our lives before a watching world. Let, let's try to personalize this. Believers come here and they, they go. What do they say when they leave? What do they say about us when they leave? In your neighborhoods, when they interact with you, what do they say when they leave? At your workplace, when they interact with you, what do they say when they leave? 
students at school, what's your reputation? What, what do they say about you when they leave? You different? You distinct? What do they say about you? What's your reputation? Again, not, not just people who liked them or loved them or easy. These for all the saints. I, I, I doubt they were perfect. We'll never be perfect. But overall, what, what's, what's our reputation? Do, do we love as we've been loved, or do we love as we or do we love as we want to love? Do we do are we sacrificially merciful in our love for others, or are we selfishly merciful in our love for others? Do we pick and choose? Because the number one, number one thing Satan wants to do here in this church and every other church is disrupt what's going on through disunity. Disunity. And it becomes a little, well, I got this click over here and this click over here and this click over and, and a visitor comes in and nobody can break through. Love for the saints. And you see it on your handout. You and I as believers are not knit together by our similarity or mutual interest or anything Anything based on the way the world loves. We're knit together because we're in Christ. Christ has knit us together. We're, we're a bunch of sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. Again, that's why Paul goes to great lengths to say, look, there's no, there's no arrogance in the cross. There's humility. And his distinguishing factor for believers is how we love one another. Even in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 5, listen to what he says. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, and, and he says a new commandment. It wasn't new in the sense that they, did, they had heard love your neighbor as yourself. They had heard that. It, it's going to be new in the sense that Jesus is modeling it for them. He's going to model it. He's going to give them a real-life example. Here's what it looks like. Death. All the way to dying of self. As I have loved you, you love one another. Listen, by this, verse 35, all men will know you are my disciples if you have a what? Love for one another. A love for one another. The distinguishing mark, you see it on handout, of believers is a love for one another. Galatians 6.10, again, he says the same thing. Love, this, lo, love all people, but especially, he says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are to the household of faith, fellow believers. And where faith is healthy, where it's growing, there will be a love for others, again, flowing, again, flowing from how you have first been loved. First John 4, 19. You know how to love. Why? Because Christ demonstrated it in your life, believer. He's shown you. He's modeled it. And, and again, all of this flows from the gospel. All of this is showing the supremacy of Christ. A grasping of our own salvation first and then that flowing into others. God's love for us produces, you see it on your handout, a, in us a love for others. Even, even again, even Ephesians 1.5, listen to what it says. 
just starting verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Listen, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In love. Our lives as believers are about being in awe of that love, that God would love us first. Not, hey, get your act together, become worthy, and then I'll love you. No, no, while you're a sinner, while we're enemies, I'll love you. And see, that makes all the difference in the world, because when you come to Romans 12, 18, and the Bible says... Do good to those who don't do good to you. Love your even your enemies. You come to that verse and you're thinking, man, how am I going to do that? You know how you're going to do that? By looking at the guy in the mirror and how you've been loved by God first. That's how you're going to do that. Go back to the gospel. God loved me when I was an enemy. Okay. And again, all of this is spirit-filled. All of this is 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 fueled by the word of God. We'll see it in Colossians three sixteen. The word the word of God richly dwell within you. That's how that's how God controls you. That's how I begin to love people that aren't lovable. Not in my flesh. I won't do that in my flesh. But the spirit of God, when the word of God is richly dwelling in me, and that word of God controls me, then I'll do it. Because it's not me doing it. Even in Philippians 3, we say work out your salvation, or Philippians 2, work out your salvation with, verse 12, with fear and trembling. If you stop there, you think it's up to you, but the next verse says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Who's doing the working out? It's, it's the Spirit in you. We have a role for sure, but it's God doing the work in us. You go back to Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that was the whole, I'll put the Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. And look, loving one another, that's what it means to be in Christ, to love one another, all flowing from the gospel. So Paul was thankful for their faith, he was thankful for their love, but he also says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Look, notice what the source of their faith and their love was. It was hope. The source was hope. The source of their faith and love, again, it was, it was oriented upon things that weren't even seen yet. Why not? Because the best is yet to come. For a believer, again, we've been saved by grace through faith, but in hope. That's why Paul says in later, Philippians 3, 2, set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what fuels all this? Hope. Hope. And listen, this is one of my favorite passages in in all the Bible. And in Romans 4, 18, Paul is recounting Abraham. And listen to what Abraham, obviously, he was given the Abrahamic covenant. He he had no children. He and Sarah, God promised to give them a child. I mean, you're talking about a a 100-year-old man, I think a 90-year-old woman. They have no children. It had been 10, 15 years after the promise, and they still don't have children. You, I mean, you can imagine, let's give Abraham and Sarah some credit or some leeway if they wavered a wee bit. Not exactly prime kingdom-building material. Take a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Let's, let's go. Let's build something out of this. 
And then, by the way, she didn't get pregnant the next day. Ten years later, nothing. But listen to this. In hope against hope. I love that phrase. From, from a fleshly standpoint, when Abraham looked at Sarah, when he looked at himself in the mirror, there was nothing about the two of them that fueled his hope. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to which he had been spoken. So shall your decisions be. Listen to this, verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. So from a fleshly standpoint, not looking good. But look, look at verse 20, and this is what I love. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully, here it is, verse 21, being fully assured that God would, that, that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Where was Abraham's confidence? It was in God. Was it in something seen or something unseen? Unseen. And yet he did not waver. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteous. From a, from a fleshly standpoint, no reason to hope. But yet, with respect to the character and the person of God, every reason to hope. And, and the point is that, you see it on your handout, confidence in God fueled through the scriptures fuels hope. Even we see that specifically in Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Scriptures. God's past faithfulness fuels our hope. We read the scriptures and we see that we're not alone. We see God's faithfulness. It fuels us. Hope. When we rob ourselves of these scriptures, you're crushing your hope. You're, you're crushing your hope. And, and again, just like Abraham, we have to wait for the totality of the blessings that are coming our way. They're future. They're unseen. In, in Romans 8, listen to what he says in Romans 8, for in, verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that isn't seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Hope. And Paul says here our hope, it's laid up in heaven. The, the Greek word there literally means to put away. It means to store. In, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We saw in, a fee, in, in Hebrews 11, 1, the hope is it's not a flimsy hope. It's a confident hope. Why? Because it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Even verse 27 of chapter 1 of Colossians. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of His glory of the mystery according to the, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope. Future. Not yet fully seen. If you look at 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, listen to what he says about our hope. You can fill in the blanks there, 1 through 3, as we... 
as we, as we read these passages. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a, there's the first hand to fill in, to a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope, not just something done in the past, present benefits, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at what he says in verse 4, the second handout, fill in. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. That's the fill in. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Same thing Paul said. Listen to what it says in verse 5. For you who are protected by the power, that's the third handout, fill in, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready revealed in the last time. God himself is protecting the whole of our salvation. Protected. A hope that is laid up, that's protected. There's no comparison. This hope that, that Christ has offered us, it's unrivaled. It's, it's a deep-seated, sure conviction that God is able to do what He promised He's going to do. And, and the hope of, of, of Christ, it's the reality of, that's, a, that's, a sure, that's sure despite whatever we see or don't see or whatever we experience. That's, what, that's why I read, showed us that passage about Abraham. Hope promises, believers, there is a sovereign God over it all, orchestrating it all for your good. That's Romans 8, 28. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Our hope in God, is, it produces a steadfastness. You see it on your handout. It's the assurance that in spite of all the chaos we face in this world, listen, God wins. He's the victor. It will not separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's sure. No, no, other, no other philosophy or religion offers that. A surety. A promise. You either risk losing your salvation, you got to get it again, or you never really know if you have salvation, and you just hope that, you know, you're, you hope that your good works outweigh your bad works, and you hope you get in, and then if you're a Hindu, then you get to re re reincarnated and do it all over again in case you didn't make it. And I'm not trying to belittle those. I'm simply showing those. You compare that to, to Christianity that says, no, you know definitively you're in. You know definitively you're forgiven. Oh, and by the way, your inheritance is protected by the very one who saved you. I think that's pretty secure. When the one who saved me is the one who also protects me being saved. And hope provides that assurance. Morality doesn't bring that. Principles don't bring that. Law, a mission, none of the other false postures we saw bring that. Christ brings that. And when troubles come, you see it on your handout, when hopes and dreams die, when everything that you've trusted in, everything you see is falling apart, listen, we can have a certain hope. Why? Because it's Christ. And it's protected by the power of God. It's rooted in being in Christ. Adoption. Sonship, daughtership. And when, when we're in Christ, listen, what, what this produces, what Bible study and the Word of God and all these things, as you mature, what it produces is faith and love and a sure hope. 
And, and again, it's not, it's not that troubles won't come. 2 Timothy 3.12, for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Psalm 69, 1 and 2, Psalm 69, 14 and 15. When the waters rise, here's what he promises. They will not overtake you. The waters will rise, but they won't, or they won't overtake you. Why? Because your hope is in Christ, and Christ promised it. Romans 8, 37, 38. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul lists all these things, and at the end he says, nor any other created thing. Because you know what you and I want to do? We want to slip something in. Well, what about this? What about this? No, no, nothing. That's the point, nothing. Nothing. Sure hope. Lo loyalty to Christ will involve all kinds of loss, all kinds of pain, all kinds of suffering. Paul went through those. Go to 2 Corinthians 11. You'll see them. Paul's point was this. Not that you won't suffer. It's that that suffering won't separate you from Christ. That's the hope even to the point that faith and love fueled by hope allow us, what? To even love those who do not love us. Why? Because that's exactly what God did through Christ. To, to spend a life of selflessness versus on yourself, to spend a life based on what that which is permanent and eternal, not which is based on temporal and things of this world, to live a life that looks out for the weaker brother and, and not just tells them to grow up? The answer is hope. And what our hope does, you see that on your handout, our, our hope promises that our circumstances do not define us. They're not final. It's not based on circumstances. And just as the Colossians, you see it, needed to be reminded, we need to be reminded that our hope rests in the solid foundation of what God has committed to do for His children in the future. There are present benefits, no doubt, but it is, there is an inheritance laid up for us in the future. And lastly, what we have to see is all of this, number four, Faith, hope, and love was rooted in the gospel. And next week, I want to spend some time looking at exactly what that word means. But again, that came to us through the gospel, he says. And what we see here is the foundational nature of the gospel in our lives as believers. We've been walking through this on, on Wednesday night for the past, whatever, four or five weeks, answering the question, what is the gospel? Because it's a whole lot more than what we make it out to be. It's a whole lot more than simply a plan of salvation. It's a relationship. It's a creator. It's a king. Reconciling a lost world, a lost creation to himself and building a kingdom out of those. It's a, it's a, it's a creator restoring, reconciling all things back to the way that he created them. It's not just a, a way that we get our sins forgiven so we can go on living the way we want to live in this world. It's a relationship. It's an, it's an adoption into a family. It's a lordship. It's a submission. It's a death of self and a living for somebody else's glory. All of that is wrapped up when he says the gospel. And, and verses 3 through 23 are, are all about the sufficiency of the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus 
Christ, unrivaled, unmatched. And what he's saying is do not be moved away from Christ in your hope for righteousness and the forgiveness of sin. Christ is enough. He's enough. He's sufficient. And, and that's how this whole this section, this whole section ties into this letter. Because the more that we understand the sufficiency of Christ, the awesomeness of Christ, the greatness of Christ, you see the last hand, the la, well, is it in the next to the last. No false teacher is going to sway you once you've truly seen who Christ is. Why? Because he's got nothing to offer you. It would be like you going down to Ruth's Chris and having a steak and you driving by the Waffle House and they've got a sirloin on sale and you're like, man, I wonder if I should go in there and eat that. No. No. There's going to be zero temptation. Why? Because you just had a steak at Ruth's Chris. You know, I forgive me if you own a Waffle House or if you work there. Or, but seriously, do you see my point? Once, you, once you've had Ruth's, you don't want nothing that Waffle has to offer. It doesn't matter how big it is, well, how they sell, no, because you're full. You're satisfied. And, and what Paul is offering is the, the reality of who Christ is, that we would be so satisfied in understanding the sufficiency of Christ that the things of this world, they'd have nothing to offer us to, to fill us up or to satisfy. Why? Because we're satisfied in Christ. And, and John himself, as I close, he illustrates this in... In John 6, Jesus teaches some hard truths, and it says, many of his disciples wonder, they left him. Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, you guys want to leave too? And here's what they said, where would we go? You, you alone have words of eternal life. That's essentially what Paul is saying, that, that the world would throw all this stuff, and you know what you'd say? I, I have found my hope. I've set my anchor in the sure hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he provides. I'm not wandering anywhere. You've got nothing to offer me. And the whole point of this book is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, last fill-in, is the one universal answer to the quest for salvation. For the whole world. There's one way for man to be forgiven of their sin. It's through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. One way. And the miracle is that there's a way at all. It's through total aligning and submitting of my life to Christ. Being in Christ. In Christ. And I pray that we would be a people that would be defined by our faith, by our love, and by our hope, and that that would be rooted in the gospel. The pure gospel of this word. The work of Christ, the work of God through Christ alone. Nothing added, nothing taken away, it's sufficient. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I would beg you to be reconciled, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. As his ambassador, as Paul says in Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 5, be reconciled. God has offered reconciliation. Where sin had alienated, God has offered reconciliation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That, excuse me, that we might become the righteousness of God. And if you're a believer today, feast on this. Know, know your catcher. Know your Savior. Be confident in your Savior.
so that we would be a people marked by faith, hope, and love.